0: All right, everybody. Good morning, at least uh, from Connecticut. I don't know where you're listening or what time you're listening, but it's morning for me. Um, It's so nice to have you guys here. This is a very selfish podcast uh, today because one of my favorite, favorite games in the world is a game called Great War Spearhead. And thankfully, uh, the author of that game has decided to make an appearance here on this podcast. So I'm very excited. before I get into who that person is, even though, if again, if you've heard of the game, you probably know who he is. But um, just a couple of quick plugs, um, depending on when this uh, podcast actually is heard by you. Um, we've got Historicon 2023 coming up. Next Gen, um, one of the groups I work with, we are actually going to have a room... Um, on site. So depending on when this podcast comes out, either you may have already gone to that room if you are a war gamer and you're going to be there or again, if if this podcast comes out before the convention, then um you know, we have a room it, it has something along the lines of three or four tables and we'll be running games in there all day. So um, hopefully we'll uh, see you guys there now. Um, to the actual podcast today. So, uh, Mr. Sean Taylor from lovely Canada. I'm sure he'll get a chance to talk a little bit about that wonderful, in some cases, snowy place. Sean Taylor is the author of uh, Great War Spearhead, amongst other games. But to me, as I said at the very beginning of this, selfishly, it's one of my favorite games. So he was one of the people that I, I thought a lot about when I started this podcast, and I knew that I wanted to get him on. So, uh, Sean, I think you can hear me, right? I can, Jared. Yeah. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning to
1: you. How are you? I'm fantastic. Awesome. Uh, everything's good.
0: Yeah. Now, very cool. <laughs> um, so, by the way, before we get into um, you know rules writing and, and and things along those lines, so I don't know, you want to talk about Canada first? Can you uh, let our viewers know or our listeners know where exactly in Canada are you located? Okay,
1: I'm uh, I'm about 32 miles as the crow flies north of Seattle, Washington. Uh, I'm on Vancouver Island, the um, capital city of British Columbia, which is the westernmost province. Um, but I live in the what we call the western community. So, like, I look right out over the Strait of Juan de Fuca.
0: Oh, I lost you. Now I'm there. Sorry, that was my bad. I was still muted. Um, and It's mostly out of excitement. So, okay, correct me if I'm wrong. So, Vancouver Island, right? Yeah. Isn't that where all of those History Channel shows are uh filmed i can't remember the name of it the one where basically people kind of get let loose into the wild and they have to kind of survive i think there, that's vancouver island
1: there is a some some of it is done here yes uh they've done uh, amazing race canada and amazing race uh, uh on vancouver island the Wanda Fuca trail is world famous yeah that's on the west coast side of the island and it's about a well it depends on how fast you go but you four or five day hike uh, out in the middle of nowhere right on the,
0: like, you know, you see some spectacular vistas. Yeah. I was going to say it's, it's considered one of the like most beautiful places in the world to visit. And yeah. See. I, yeah.
1: It, it's Ad- a great, I love it here. And the, the climate, as far as, like, you know, if you talk about Canada being uh, a little colder than the United States uh, in general terms, Victoria is the most mild climate in Canada. So we don't get huge fluctuations. I mean, it's changing a little bit now, but we don't get huge fluctuations in um, in our uh, general temperature. So it's really nice. You don't get a lot of snow. You don't get it really hot in general terms. Now, we have had the heat domes like everybody else recently. But uh, overall, yeah, you can wear a T-shirt and jeans uh,
0: probably about 10 months of the year here. That's super cool, and I do know uh, the wildlife is also pretty wild there. Like you guys have a lot of lot of different kinds of animals. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. We we've got bears, uh, um, what they call the uh, coastal wolf, uh, cougars, uh, raccoons. Like I get deer in my yard every day. My dog chases them out, and uh, you know.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. It's a good dog, I guess. I mean, deer are not very smart, so um, I don't know. They're always <laughs> causing accidents. But then again, I guess, like, if they could talk, they would probably blame us, you know, for being on their <laughs> being on their territory and such. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So did you
1: grow up there? Um, I I grew up in British Columbia. Yes. But I was born in uh, uh, a place uh, in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, it's called Revelstoke. It's right at the it's a, uh, at the mouth of a pass called Rogers Pass. Mm-hmm. It's the highway one of Canada that runs through the Rogers Pass. So that's where I was born, but I grew up in a little place called Armstrong, which is uh, world famous for cheese, if you can believe it. And uh, it's just, a, it was a little dinky hump town, 900 people when I was growing up. It's its much bigger now, but I mean, it's still not a metropolis, it's a town. But it was right in between two really cool valleys, uh, the Okanagan Valley, which Okanagan Lake runs all the way down almost to uh, Washington State. And then Washington State has its own Okanagan Valley, but spelt slightly different. And then uh, the other one was Shushwap Lake, which is a or Shuswap Valley, which is a, a completely different uh, um, geography. So Okanagan Lake is almost desert around it, and Shushwap is all um, central forest. Like it's it's a it's an incredible change. Um, from one to the other, so I I was really lucky. We grew up grew up in Lake Country, and uh, uh, you know we were riding bikes around the town for uh, you know, when we were eight years old. You ran rode all the way around the town. The biggest fear you had was the dog that was going to run out and bite you in the ankle when you drove by. <laughs> <laughs> That's,
0: no, that sounds like a that sounds like a great childhood, a great place to grow up. I'm always amazed by just the physical and sheer size of Canada. And and again, like I I kind of mentioned the stereotype of Canada being cold, but given how massive it is, you do get so many different types of geographical features, you know, depending on where you are, which always kind of amazes me about the country.
1: Yeah, yeah well, I mean, you know, it's the second largest country in the world for landmass. And uh, it's it stretches from the Pacific to the Atlantic uh, to the Arctic Oceans. And, uh, you know, it, like right here on Vancouver Island, you've got anything from... Uh, uh, coastal rainforest to uh uh, mount washington which has the generally has the highest snowfall on a ski resort anywhere in canada so and that's only an hour or two hour two and a half hours from my home and that's all on vancouver island so you you get a real mix So we've got rattlesnakes in the okanagan and then we've got moose and grizzly bear uh 10 miles from there
0: (laughs) oh gotcha gotcha so you really like you rival australia in terms of uh wildlife that if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time it'll get you (laughs) yeah that possibility (laughs) yeah indeed so um in terms of like your sort of like gaming origin story um when did you discover i mean any kind of game miniature wargaming or role-playing or like like where where does that kind of uh start in terms of your life
1: well okay so um first of all I'm the youngest of seven kids, right? So um, my oldest brother is 19 years older than me. And when I was, uh, I think I was three, he bought me two boxes of Airfix uh, um, soldiers. One was Africa Corps, the other was 8th Army. And I fell in love with them. Now, all my family, like I, you know, I've got four brothers, um, my mom and dad. Um, and I have two sisters, but all my brothers served in the military as Mm -hmm. did I for seven years and uh, my mom and dad both served during the war. Right. So I have, I come from a martial background and the whole idea of being, uh, of of being interested in the military just came, I don't know, naturally, I guess. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's where I kind of started the idea of, of wanting to collect more and more miniatures was, was from way back when I was three years old now. Actual gaming, I I got my first board game, Avalon Hill, Battle of the Bulge, yeah, when I was eleven. Gotcha. And uh, I I at one point had all the available Avalon Hill games. And uh, one day I was going through my our only hobby shop in in Vernon, and I saw a game called Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, this was back when it was, you know, the the, the original. Um, and uh, I I picked it up, and I picked up Black uh, Blackmore and Greyhawk as well. And I, I got into role playing games, and I I still have a a large flavor uh, like outside of Great War Spearhead. A lot of my games have a a role playing flavor to them because I really like that kind of uh, idea. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so it, I, I sort of grew from there.
0: No, that's awesome. I um, In terms of all of the different components of your sort of gaming origin story that you're talking about, it's interesting. So many of us have so many connections there because literally, as you were talking, I mean, my own father gave me Airfix figures as well, at, at, you know, <laughs> like in my formative years, you know, uh, I can clearly remember um, setting up like a diorama of the Battle of Tobruk. So you know, there's such overlap there, and then of course the role-playing thing as well. I mean, D and D is just—it's um, really just at the top of the heap when it comes to like you mentioned the word gaming to somebody, and D and D is often like on the tip of their tongue. So so it sounds, and also Avalon Hill too. You know, I I wasn't too into. um like squad leader and things like that but i knew about it and i had a few of the games you know so there's a lot of connections there
1: oh for sure yeah
0: yeah did um when you played those avalon hill games did you have like a community of people around you that also played or were you doing solo stuff or how did that work for you uh well
1: there was there was of course my my uh, network of friends that were in school with me and, okay. and armstrong was only 900 people right and then you go to Vernon, and Vernon at that time I think was about uh, seven or eight thousand. So what they did they did hold, um, for lack of a better term, conventions. They weren't really conventions. It was, uh, the, the, it was the the hobby shop in Vernon was called the Model Shop, and the guy that uh, ran it was an ex military guy from Calgary. He was a PPCLI. Um, princess patricia canadian light infantry mm-hmm. and when he got out uh like he was really into modeling um a lot of rc model but he also was really into big big into uh, avalon hill board games and so he used to put on um small conventions and he would he would give you prizes uh, uh from his um his store right and often the prizes were britain you, you remember the old britain uh 54 millimeter i figures? do he I would do. give you or there was also the slaughter, uh, I think they're called slaughter or no ring hand, uh uh soldiers and and cowboys and uh and uh indigenous uh, uh warriors, right? Mm-hmm. And but he would give you a package of them and there would be like 10 or 15 in it, and it, it like if you won the won the game or whatever, right? But yeah. and for the top of the heap, you might win a, a new board game from Avalon Hill or something like that. Uh, yeah. So there was that network, but my my network close to home because I mean you know back then I, the the ch- the chances of going to Vernon, which was only 11 miles away, was like a once a week trip with your mom and dad, right? So you didn't drive 11 miles unless it was absolutely necessary because gotcha. that was a long. <laughs> gotcha. So no, it makes I, sense. I had about five or six friends, and we were all in high school together, and well, you know, junior high and high school together, and we played played games together. Um, Rick Toffin's War was huge in in school. Um, I had 48 kills and I got shot down by a brand new guy. I was so bummed out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it sounds like you had a nice community around you, you know, and having a, a store like you're describing is so important. Um, and it's just I don't know. Um, I don't I don't know what it's like in Canada now, like where, where you are, but I find that there are. There's a lot more historical miniature gaming happening in comic book stores now than there were before, probably because of games like Bolt Action and Flames of War and stuff along those lines. So it's always nice to see.
1: Right, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, my local game store that's like um I could walk there if I wanted to. Um guys the the guy is really good and uh but the vast majority of the people there play uh 40K.
2: Mhm.
1: And I have no interest in in uh, 40K, um, just, just because it, like I, I don't like the system. Not that there's
0: anything wrong with the miniatures or anything. I just don't like their system. No, totally. But, I'm literally on the same page with you. Yeah.
1: But uh, yeah, uh, we do see, uh, like, uh, University of Victoria has a very active community, and they are all, I would say, 90% historic. Yeah, there's guys that play like Mantic. Uh, um, was it Kings of War, I think. Yes, and, and a couple things like that. But most of them are are historical gamers.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and again, not to get sidetracked, because I know at some point we're gonna we're gonna start to really get into the nitty gritty of Great War Spearhead. But you know, on the on the games workshop note, it's just on my mind now because it, it's just stunning to me, um, how well they're doing. I mean. They're, you know, the whole, the 10th edition box that I just know because going to game stores and even just being on Instagram doing next-gen stuff, I mean, the influencers are out there pushing, pushing, pushing 10th edition and it's like, I I think it's sold out already, you know, at least the, the initial run that the company sort of came out with. So, I mean, again, like I was just saying, I'm not... I used to play a lot of that game i'm not the biggest fan of the rules per se but i don't know you have to kind of give them a pat on the back for being the kind of company that they are at least in terms of their profits you know
1: well you know i i started playing warhammer when it was the original mm-hmm. and uh, played warhammer up to third edition and when fourth edition came out and i saw the the business model like actually unfolding in front of me i was like i'm out uh, Yeah, i'm not Uh, doing this. I I did get back in with them with uh, um, Battles of Mm -hmm. Middle-Earth because I I liked that system, but then they started to come out with the same idea of all the scenario books and everything else, and I thought, no, no, I know what's going to happen. And sure enough, it was the same model. And don't get me wrong, I think they have done a marvelous job of building on the hobby and drawing people in and um, um, you know, refreshing um the whole mindset of um uh of the miniature hobby itself cuz you know it, it's too easy to be drawn into uh just sitting on the computer by yourself so you know they've done a really good job of all of that and i have no problem with any of that the thing i don't like that they do is they redo their miniatures every 5 years they redo their rule sets every 5 years and their miniatures by and large are really good i mean you know the perry brothers Uh, worked with them for a long time Mm -hmm. magnificent artists that do the work but their rules have never since and and i'm i'll 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 use my own um experience only for me warhammer first edition was the best i played with minor exceptions with third edition Mm -hmm. third when they came up with battle magic and all that stuff that was so cool yes fourth edition they actually went backwards and to me, they never, ever came back to the same level. And I, I listened to the guys talking about the rules and, and if there's that many rules problems with a system that has been around for as long as Warhammer and 40 K have been around, they mucked it up Yeah, and from, from a rule position. Right. Um, so I, that's, I, I just won't go back to it. I I have no interest whatsoever cause they don't get, they, don't, I don't think they really care that the rules are just okay. They have a business model. They stick to that business model, and you can't blame them for that. It works, and they draw people into the hobby. So, you know, for you and me, and a bunch of people that don't really appreciate 40k or, or Warhammer in general, they're good for the hobby. You can't you can't deny that.
0: Yeah, I'm on the same page with you. Um, I I've, I don't know. I've ha- I've always had this uh, desire to just be a fly on the wall in the room when they're actually talking about their rules. Because, I mean, obviously, they do put time into it, but, um, I don't know. Rick Priestley, who was the first guest on this show, was basically talking a little bit about the fact that even before the new edition comes out... So, for example, 10th edition is on the precipice of coming out. There's already people in a room talking about 11th edition. So, I mean, that right there... Um, I guess one could, I mean, I guess not from a profit standpoint, from a playability standpoint, that's probably a problem, right? I would say, yeah. Yeah, for I mean, it. yeah it's wild stuff, you know? Um, and yeah, like, I've always enjoyed the lore and stuff along those lines. And also, too, and I, I'd be curious what your take is, I've always loved all of their other games. So like, for example, like Epic 40K and um battlefleet gothic and mordheim all of those games i love those like i still will occasionally break those out it's just always been the main rules which i guess to them is their bread and butter you know that i've always like had kind of a love hate thing with
1: yeah i think i think i would say i'm probably uh almost step for step with you on that um i really enjoyed mordheim when it came out um i really enjoyed um Oh, no, I, for, I forget the name of the The, the uh, 40K version of Mordheim. What was that? Oh, um, necro- Necromunda. Necromunda, yeah. Those yeah. were And I still play, you know, the only one I play still is every once in a while I'll throw together a, a Middle-Earth battle by myself here. And uh, I also play um, Blood Bowl from time to time. Just, oh, Blood just, Bowl's great. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I think I, I think, like, you know, mentioning that they're already talking about uh, 10th edi- or 11th edition when 10th edition is just reaching the stores to me that's a problem but i, I think uh, again when we go back to how they do their business modeling they want it to be a flowing system right mm-hmm. and uh, so you know you look at things like uh um, if you look at the older guys like peter gilder and uh, uh charles grant guys like that they they've had a very basic system that worked really well because most people had no concept of anything other than Kriegspiel, right? And the old traditional Kriegspiel, you didn't roll dice. It was all based on on what unit you had. Mm-hmm. so uh, those guys really pioneered the origin, origins of wargaming the way we know it today. But their systems were static because communications was so slow, right? Right. So you system like i I, i'm sure you remember the old wrg systems oh yes absolutely yeah so so those systems evolved very slowly over 25 30 years and after a while because they didn't evolve fast enough they became obsolete so you know there's there is a there is a um a linkage there of keeping your system fresh mind you you look at things like fire and fury um, spearhead, Great War Spearhead. I mean, Great War Spearhead's been out for over 20 years. Right. From the original to today, right? And the only thing we've ever changed is to uh, make it more composite and clean up the language. Right. Um, we didn't have to change anything. So that, to me, speaks of the system itself. Now, if you have to do... If you do what what um, uh, Games Workshop does, uh, where they want to refresh... Like, I think they actually... They, I think they they're, they deal well with the um, the social aspect of what's coming through the pipe from uh, from young people. Because they don't care about keeping you and I in the system, right? Right. They, they want to get new people. So to get new people, to expand your um, clientele, if you will, you have to look at the youth that are coming up. Yep. So to attract the youth, what's attracting youth today compared to what attracted them 25 years ago? is far different and you know from that perspective I think that they probably have it right oh definitely
0: uh, I definitely.
1: don't have, I, like I'm an I'm an independent writer right so I don't have the time the uh, the patience or the capability of going into all of that um, tearing down um, what might be the blockages of keeping somebody in a system I write for what I want to uh, do, um, or want to see on a table that makes me feel like I'm gaming a certain period or a certain type of or style of game right
0: yeah I think there's a huge difference between being a rules writer like yourself <clears throat> compared to like massive corporation slash business like games workshop or really any I mean you could argue the same thing for warlord games because you know the thing is and again I I hope I'm not being redundant for for listeners of this podcast because this has come up before but you know, if you look at Warlord games, if you look at Mantic games, if you look at a lot of the bigger companies and even certain rule sets like a game like Saga, they've all basically looked at Games Workshop. And if if you're thinking about making a profit, um, a lot of those companies are doing very, very similar stuff to what GW is doing. Whereas I think for you, right? I mean, let, why don't we freeze there? I mean, I don't know what you think about that.
1: No, I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, I think they, they, they go after two things, right? They go after uh, a, a, an ability to refresh on a on a continual basis, and they go after tournaments. Yep. So they're Absolutely. they're all based on cons, right? So you you have a point system. It, it's got nothing to do with uh, what might be considered the reality of battlefield um, um, situations, because if you have any military experience at all, you know it is never equal. Right. right? There's always advantages, whether it's because you have better intelligence. Better weapon systems, more troops, uh, better defensive positions. Uh, whatever the case may be, there's never ever where it's even. And if it's even, you don't go in. It's that simple, right? So, right. so the whole of the of the uh, you know the con- concept for conventions where it's equal and even, and both sides have a chance of winning. That that appeals to people. Now, you can change that by having a narrative based game, like I do. Where your chances of winning are not based on actually defeating the enemy, it's being able to hold on longer than uh, tradition or historically happened, right? Right. And uh, that doesn't appeal to people unless you're a a real historic type of gamer, right? Uh, I get that. You know, that's that's the the uh, the penalty, um, Mm -hmm. or you know, that's that's what I know I have to deal with is that uh, my systems are not going to be appealing to a massive amount of people unless they know the period.
0: No, totally. Absolutely. Um, and you know what? Maybe maybe we use that as kind of a segue point, right? Um, so where does your idea as a author and as a gamer, where does your idea come from in terms of taking spearhead and kind of transforming it into Spearhead for the Great War.
1: Okay, so th- it's a, for me, it's an interesting um, story. Uh, I was doing playtesting for Artie when I was with the White Rock Wargaming Group, and a good friend of mine over there, Chris Leach, who mm-hmm. writes Empires and, and a couple other things, he was very big with Artie on uh, uh, Crossfire, and I worked on that one as well, and uh, Spearhead. So I was, uh, you know, we were playing along, and we're we're working on the Spearhead uh, uh, playtesting group. And uh, I've always been interested in World War One. Like my grandfather won a a, a medal during World War One that I heard all about in 1918 when he, you know, it should have been a Victoria Cross, but because mm-hmm. he was only, uh, uh, well, he wasn't even a lance corporal at the time. They promoted him afterwards, and he was written up by a subaltern. He only got, well, he only got he got a Distinguished Service Medal. So, you know, uh, second highest uh, Medal of Valor in the British Empire at the time. Mm-hmm. And only warrant officers below could get it. Um, and when I talked to the curator of the museum in, in, of the regiments in Calgary, he said he couldn't believe that my grandfather didn't get a VC. So, you know, that always stuck in the back of my head. And I heard those stories when I was four years old, right? And so I've always had a love of... Um, understanding and wanting to do gaming in world war one so when when i was looking at spearhead i thought hey this might be able to work so i was talking to chris leach about it and he said well let me ask artie if he had let you run with it um and artie said absolutely you go ahead work on it and uh, keep me informed as you go along so um the first one was a collaborative effort between myself and artie i i did all the rules i did all the writing And then I sent it to him for proofing and ensuring that it followed his concept of how he wanted it to look. Right, And that's, that's how it went. Um, I was really lucky at the time because I was in Kingston, Ontario and Kingston is the um, staff school for the uh, Canadian army. Mm -hmm. So uh, Fort Frontenac, uh, which is their staff school has this incredible library. uh, And a friend of mine was actually the curator of the library. So, um, uh, I got to see some uh, some copies of uh, books from World War One that are um, regimental histories that are oh, like wow. one uh, uh, things like that. So I got to delve into some of the stuff that uh, the Canadian Army was writing about back then. And you know, the Canadians were quite innovative. They they were the first ones that came up with machine gun barrages and a few other things. And uh, so I got to read all about this. And then I, you know, I, that uh, and some of the other stuff that uh, were written by um, uh, um, the Brits, the the Americans, uh, the French, and then some translation of, of captured documents from the Germans, because there wasn't a lot on the German uh, regiments at the time. And I don't read Germ- uh, German
0: itself, not like Robert, who uh, fills in a lot of blanks. Right. We can uh, talk about him in a little bit, too, because yeah. I know he's a big player when it comes to. Where these rules are going, right? Oh, hugely, yeah, yeah.
1: So we, I, 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 I built it from there, and uh, when I got it all done, Artie said, "Yeah, this looks really good, Sean." He said, "I gotta warn you though that this is a. You gotta understand that this is a uh, a sideshow theater. World War One is not popular, so right. he said. Chances are you're you're not going to have huge sales, but he said you've done a really good job, and this, you know, we're going to put it on the table with. uh Um, Spearhead. So we had uh, Great War Spearhead, and then of course uh, uh, John Moore and a few other guys worked on uh, Modern Spearhead. Okay, now when was this exactly? Uh, Great War Spearhead, when did I start working on that? Uh, Oh, man. I'm going to have to say
0: 90... I'm just trying to put it in perspective here. No, that's fine. 97, 98. Oh, gotcha. That makes sense. Because I had played Artie's game before the, And by the way, for um, for our listeners, so Artie Conliff um is is like basically like a tri-state area guy here in the States. And um just if you're not if you're not aware, so Artie is a luminary figure like in 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 the whole historical wargaming community. So as Sean mentioned, you know, he wrote the the game Crossfire, and Spearhead started out as basically like a World War II game. So just, just to make sure that you all understand that as Sean is kind of going through this. So by the way, Sean, again, before we get into Great War Spearhead as a rule set itself, so you had said that you were a playtester for Artie. How did you guys meet? Did you meet at a con, or did you write him or call him?
1: Well, actually, I I, I got to know Artie through Chris Leach, and I don't know how Chris met him. I, I, I think it might have been through... Um, um, uh, Dennis, um, oh, I forget Dennis. Uh, Dennis Short, um, Shorthouse, I think it's Shorthouse. Yeah, that and sounds the, familiar. On military matters, right? He's the guy yes. that owns the, on military matters. Yeah, so um, I think Chris got to know him through through that, and uh, you know, Artie's got a quite a stable of rules as well, right? Tactica. Oh, yeah. Uh, um and chris uh, was working i think it was i, I think he was um, working on tactica um based on some conversations with Dor- with dennis and that's how he got to know artie and so i was in chris's wargaming group in white rock bc which is over on the mainland i was i was posted over there to a communication site in aldergrove and uh so i was i was gaming with these guys in white rock and that's how i got into the whole playtesting of uh of Artie's um, stable of rules, because he would send them to Chris, and Chris would be the guy who would manage the playtesting uh, on behalf of Artie for whatever rule te- uh, set we were working on.
0: Oh, that's super cool. It's such a, it's such a, in a way, such a small world when it comes to miniature wargaming in particular. But at the same time, you know, we've got playtesters like in entirely different countries. You know, it's it's pretty, it's it's pretty a pretty wild story actually. You know, that you're sort it- of describing.
1: Yeah, it was, and it was, it was really cool to uh, you know the first time you see a rule set come out and you see play testers and your names there. It's like I'm a somebody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. Now let's see, um, let's see how well we can do with this. So, if you had to isolate just a few things about Great War Spearhead in terms of how the game plays or how you view the rules for somebody that has literally never heard of the game or played the game. What what would you sort of want to tell those those listeners about this system? Okay, so I, I know it's just, a huge question. Yeah, <laughs> it's like <laughs> I know I know how difficult it is uh, to to do what I'm asking you to do. So apologies well, in advance.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm just looking down the table that I have set up right now, which is for my wargaming weekend uh, in July. I got some people coming in from out of town, and mm-hmm. uh, we're we're going to do the Straff expedition. For the on Saturday, and that's Great War Spearhead to Austrians and and Italians. So I got mm-hmm. a 12 by four foot table set up right now. So I'm just thinking, looking at it and thinking, okay, what am I gonna tell these guys that have never played? Because yeah. some of them played. So I would say that the you know, the first thing to understand is you have to look at this as um, you have to look at Great War Spearhead as if you are the general of an army. Because the idea is you're commanding a corps right um in 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 broad terms so you're looking at 40 to 60,000 men that you're trying to coordinate right so don't get caught in the minutia of how are my squads moving how are my platoons moving what's my company commander thinking you're worried about what is the regimental commander and battalion commander doing to execute the orders that you've given them so uh, i don't know if you have um much or any military background but in in staff work, you always go two levels down, right? So the the division commander looks at his brigade or regiment commanders, depending on if you're talking about continental U.S. or uh, or British Empire um, organizations, and then they go down to the battalion level. So that's as far as they would go. So if you have something in in World War II terms, if you had a um, uh, anti tank um, platoon or or a a company, like a weapons company uh, attached to your um, regiment, as the division commander, you would want to know what is going on with that special asset, because you might have to, uh, you might understand that there might be an armored thrust in a different spot that your battalion commander has no idea about. So that's what, you know, that's the two levels down, right? Makes sense. yep, That's important to understand. So you know, you only drill down two levels. That means you have to issue orders in Great War Spearhead terms down to the regimental commander. So you know you're gonna you're gonna give orders to if you're a corps commander, you're giving orders to a division, and then you're going down to the the regiment yep. or so, or brigade, depending on who you, you know where you're from.
0: Right. So so for our listeners, what I want you to sort of imagine is imagine your standard wargaming table because I've played this game hundreds of times. Imagine your wargaming table. Um, and imagine having a map that, I mean, more or less, uh, is reflective of that gaming table. What you essentially have to do is draw out lines on the map, and essentially each of your command groups needs to follow that line pretty meticulously. Yeah. Does that does that sound like a good description, Sean?
1: That is a very good description of the order phase for uh, Great War Spearhead at the beginning. Yeah.
0: Right. And it, it, that does become challenging, doesn't it, my friend, for, for, <laughs> for your, for your, for your, uh, not even your average gamer, really anybody, right? Because again, um, and, and again, Sean, I, I don't know if you've seen this happen, but, you know, when somebody puts their line on the map and all of a sudden they realize it may not have been the best idea. And yep. then things get very difficult because it becomes hard to change that command arrow during the game.
1: And how historic is that, right? Oh,
0: absolutely. For sure.
1: I love the system, right? Like, it is my favorite game, uh, game system. Like, uh, I, I really like Spearhead, but I think Great War Spearhead is even a cut above Spearhead because in... In great, in Spearhead, you you always have uh, the you know there's certain little things that that sort of um, give an advantage uh, in in some ways to a, a nation that is probably accurate, but the, what I tried to do was eliminate the um, you know the everybody said well you know the French machine gun wasn't as good as the as the uh, British or German machine gun well as a commander, as a corps commander. You had to think that your machine gun was the same as the German machine gun. Now, if you didn't have as many, you had to find a way to to deal with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I I just love that whole command arrow thing because that is one of the critical elements of this system, right? Because it forces you to think, and like uh, I've had I've had many people tell me over the years, you know. Every time I do my order phase at the beginning, I get nervous. My stomach starts churning, and I get that. Like you know, I've I've played this game probably a thousand times, Mm -hmm. and every time I have to do orders, I'm like, oh man, have I got that right? Yeah. When you when you start thinking that you're you're um, you're trying to give your troops the best possible ability to uh, be effective, and you buggered up something. Right. Did I yep. bugger it up or, or did I is it okay? And uh yeah. So I just love that whole thing about uh Spearhead. And it's such a you know, when you think of Artie's original design of that, it's such a simple concept, but it is so complex in terms of what happens on the battlefield.
0: Yes, you just took the words right out of my mouth because I would say the same thing about Great War Spearhead. So again, for our listeners, this is the kind of game that I love because it's mechanically simple, but in terms of playing the game itself, it's extremely complex. So as you're putting all of these command orders out and your units are moving along that that command line, and once you get into combat, what I love is it's mechanically easy. So, I mean, you're rolling a D6 for every stand that you have. Fours and fives will essentially suppress a unit. And then if you roll that six, you can get a kill. And that will change here and there throughout the course of the game. But what's beautiful about the game, especially running it for students, is I can literally just give them a piece of paper and all of the basic game mechanics are on there. And what they spend most of their time doing is thinking about their plan of action, which is why, selfishly, again, for me, I, I just love it, you know?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and then
0: you look at things like
1: uh, I wish I could show you the the table that I have. Like I'm I'm going to take some pictures when I'm running the game, but when you look at something like uh, you know Robert and I put on uh, Vimy Ridge at the Canadian War Museum in uh, 2017 on the hundredth hundredth uh, anniversary of Vimy, and as you start showing people what the what the terrain looks like on a scale like that. You can actually explain to them why something worked and something didn't, because you can show them, well, you know, this is, this is why this area just didn't have the same ability to uh, execute a, a good attack. All these type of things really come to light when you start looking at the whole thing. And um, Robert and I, I, I got to go over to Redding, and we were putting on Cambrai. Uh, so you can imagine, and Robert, you know how meticulous he is. We had a, a 16 by six foot table and we had over 400 tank models on the, on the table to represent all the, uh, or it was, uh, sorry, a hundred uh, tank models on the table representing the 400 British, uh, tanks that were in Cambrai. And, uh, these guys came over from, uh, they were playing Cambrai using, um, uh, great war, uh, great war, uh, rules. Um, I think it's a modification, uh, or a modified version of, uh, um, uh, Warhammer, like it was, a, yep. it was, this was quite a few years ago. And they said, Oh, we're doing Cambrai too. And they, they came over to our table and they're going, Is this the whole battle? And we said, And Robert goes, Yeah, why? What are you doing? And they and they said, Well, you know, we're doing the attack of whatever. I can't remember which regiment it was, like the torture, um, right?" Bat- and Robert goes, Oh, yeah, this would be right here. And he shows them a chunk of ground. And I'm not, I'm not joking. It was about three inches square. Yeah. Right. And that was their whole table and their table looked very beautiful. Right. Like, you know, we went, we went over and had a look and they, you know, they had nice models and it all looked really good, but you get no, you get no real concept of what it was like. Cause you know, you always hear the story, uh, you know, uh, lions led by donkeys and that kind of stuff. And I'm not i I'm not an advocate of that. I don't believe in it at all mm-hmm. because I've moved the troops around the tables that these guys had to deal with, uh, in real life. And, simulated or gaming-wise, you can see why they had such difficulty. And and it wasn't lions led by donkeys. It was guys trying to learn new tactics, new innovations on the fly in combat. Right. Well, you know, they didn't do trials like we do today. I mean, sure, they had trial a tank. Yeah. But the stuff was done first time with 10,000 guys going over the top.
0: Well, you know what's funny? Well, there's two things that I, I have to keep in the back of my mind because I do want you to tell our audience who Robert Dunlop is, because I know he's pretty much like your partner in crime, so to speak, when it comes to the rules. But something, you you know, you just said is, I think, so important. I, I think that World War One is honestly one of, from an academic standpoint, it's one of the most misunderstood war, uh, wars. Um, really, almost ever, because so many times, like a student will sit in my classroom who only has like a cursory understanding of World War One, and they'll kind of say, oh, like that's the war with the trenches and nothing happened. And to me, more happened in those four years. I mean, if you look at it, the way an army performed in 1914 and you compare it to 1918, I mean, you're talking about worlds of difference. And you're right. It's all literally happening as people are dying, which is really like a uh, a really unbelievable sort of kind of conflict. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, so you just just expanding on on what you were talking about um i i I used to talk to um uh, a lot of military groups when I was uh, still in, right? Um so I was one of the senior chiefs in the Canadian Navy, one of the top six chiefs and uh, chief petty officers and uh, so I you know I used to talk to people all about a lot of different things, including history and uh, you know you would talk about uh, the evolution of combat and uh, I would use the example that in at Vimy Ridge, uh, we sent roughly 110,000 British and Canadian soldiers over the top over a over a uh, a length of roughly uh, 10 kilometers. Right, so 10 kilometers length of battlefield, 110,000 people. Now you you try and put that in perspective um, when I uh, when I tell them at D Day, June 6, 1944, the British Canadians and uh, and Americans. Sent in about hundred and ten thousand guys over fifty miles mm-hmm. of terrain. Right, so that speaks to an understanding of uh, of the actual um, concentration of force, especially on the Western Front. The World War One generals were dealing with, right? Right, and and the idea that, like, you know, I I know exactly what you mean. Everybody thinks that uh, that scenes from Dale or the Somme. Is World War One, and nothing can be further from the truth, right? Right. There were there were some definite periods where it was stagnant, but uh, when you when you look at the war overall, I mean, look at look at the uh, you know the Italian front, uh, the Eastern Front, Mesopotamia, there were things being learned on all those fronts because everybody had advisors on every front, right? The, like, you know, the, there was, uh, Italians watching what was going on in the Western front. There was French and British up on the Italian front. There was, um, everybody had, uh, people watching the Russians and, uh, and seeing how they were doing business and the, and the, uh, the allies were the same. The, you know, the Austrians had, um, advisors down, down in, uh, Suez with the, um, with the Ottomans and, uh, the, the, the idea that um, you know they tried wave attacks because uh, the linear attacks they used in, in the beginning in 1914 didn't work, so they used waves, right? Well, the wave attack didn't work any better, not because it was a bad idea, but because they didn't have enough artillery to stop the machine guns from cutting down guys in swaths. So then they enhanced the artillery. Well, when they enhanced the artillery the The defender would just simply move out of the trenches, move fifty feet forward, and lay down. And it took them a while to understand that that was happening. Right. So you had all these other things going on. Like, I mean, it, have you ever read much on on Mesopotamia?
0: I have, but I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm no scholar on the uh, yeah. era. But I mean, I, I've you know, most of my academic work when I got my master's in history, um, most of it was about World War One. Hence okay. why. I love your game so much because I am going to make a point in a second. Well no, I feel like I should make it right now. Um everything that we're talking about, the thing that I love more than anything else about Spearhead is everything that Sean and I are talking about on an academic level, you will see on the tabletop. Like you will understand these concepts more by playing Spearhead, which is really like the highest compliment that one could give to a game. So sorry to interrupt you, Sean, but no nope. I felt oh, like I uh, had to point that out because people will see all of this when they play.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate your comment, Jared, because like you, you you hit the nail on the head. It, it For me, when I game, when I write rules, I want the people that are going to play the game to feel like they're gaming whatever concept I'm trying to put forward, whether it's... Um, uh, Great War Spearhead Two, of course, is the is the big one. But you know, I, I wrote Por Portlendo Shin Inept, which is international extraterrestrial paranormal tactical teams, right? And people to get that feel that they're doing whatever it is that I'm trying to uh, to emulate on the on the on the table, right? So yeah, the I mean, if you if you decide you're going to throw in your infantry division without any support, they're going to get gunned down before right. they even get to
0: they oh they they will. Um and you know what's kind of interesting? Um, and I am gonna poke fun just a little bit, right? Yep. Um, you know, I, I have I've definitely had moments where some gamers who are used to games where they can do whatever they want whenever they want, they can be very frustrated by yes. a system like Great War Spearhead. And again, I am poking fun just a, a scotch, but um you know because I guess for people like you have to kind of play the games that kind of speak to you um but you know it is interesting you know like uh war is not like that you can't do whatever you want whenever you want which I think again great War spearhead you know does a good do- uh, a good job kind of reflecting
1: yeah thank you very much for that because that Important for me and it's important for robert like uh so robert dunlop let's let's go into robert yeah let's
0: talk about him because he's is quite the character i've never met him before but i have to i have to tell you sean that i mean when i discovered great war spearhead it was partly through robert's website um uh which is just um a treasure trove of 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 knowledge really about about great war spearhead so go for it um what is our what should our audience know about uh robert dunlop
1: Okay, so Robert and I met um, after Great after Great War Spearhead was released, and uh, we met on on my group that I formed uh, on Yahoo Groups, and uh, he sent me a, a, an email one day um, based on 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 yeah, I, I said in the rules if you have any questions, email me, and he. Went on about how great he thought the rules were. He said, uh, "I just love them," uh, you know. And he and he went on and on about a few different things. Told me about how his grandfather was in the Machine Gun Corps in uh, the New Zealand Army, and uh, you know. And we just we just connected like um, it was kismet, so to speak. Right. And uh, as I started moving down the road with uh, Great War Spearhead itself, the original. I got a lot of complaints from people, not because of the rules, but because it was not standalone. So you had to have Spearhead to be able to play Great War Spearhead. So I started to talk to Robert and Artie about doing a standalone set. And Robert said, I'm all in. If you want help, I'm I'm in. Let, just let me know. And so we decided to uh, uh, to go ahead with Great War Spearhead too. Now, Robert, to give you some background about him, he's a, a New Zealander who now lives in London, England. Well, I I don't know if it's London anymore. He's on the outskirts of London because he Mm -hmm. moved a little. But he was an oncologist, a doctor, right? So he's got a doctor in uh, medicine. Um, But he went away from that to start developing software to help doctors diagnose diseases. So that's what he does now. Um, But the guy is an absolute gem because he speaks German. Reads German really well. He speaks German to a a good degree. He's also uh, um, uh, quite capable in uh, in speaking and reading French, and he's meticulous in his efforts. And his whole concept is, you know, as we're as we're dealing with uh, with rule sets and and, uh, and scenario books, we have to delve into the minutia of why something happened a certain way to make sure that when we develop a scenario or we develop a rule change or, or rewrite a rule that it makes sense historically. So, um, he will, he goes into, uh, individual regimental histories. And as you start reading through these things and you piece it all together from the regimental history up to the Brigadier division, you can start to see why things unfolded a certain way. And, uh, that really, really helped, um, not streamline but make even more uh realistic if you will the rules that we were working on uh, depending on whether it was calling in artillery uh, machine gun fire all that kind of stuff and um since then since we since we did great war spearhead 2 and if i remember uh great war spearhead 2 i think was released in 2012 uh right at the end of the year and um, so you could say 2013. So it's been out oh, 10 years. And uh, since then, we have learned oodles more about uh, World War I, primarily because of what Robert has been going through with all the German histories he's got. And uh, so that's, you know, we started looking at some things. And the rules, for, like you know, when we start working on Great War Spearhead III, the rules won't change a lot. Because uh, we think we've got most of it down pretty pat, there will be some changes. Like we want to make sure the artillery's cleaned up a little bit, and mm-hmm. wanna we want to relook at the the sort of like I, I put in trench warfare combat as a sort of a generic capture for people who didn't know how to game. Uh, trench warfare mm-hmm. and that's a lot of people away right so we uh, when I did the original I was working with myself and Mal right and so we based a lot of it on um, on the western front only because we didn't have a lot of other um, background and you know eastern front trench warfare did happen it wasn't quite as uh, as dense as uh, west as right. you know but um, it still has a, a, a it still has a port, uh, part to play but it's maybe not well represented the fr- the way I wrote the uh, the original rules for trench warfare. So we're going to work on that a bit to try and make it um, uh, not less generic, but um, try and keep it a little simpler to organize, but still have a capture of whichever front you're going to be playing on. Right. I think. You- i I'm, I'm sorry about that. Go ahead. No, no. I was just just I was just finishing off just to to emulate it. Man.
0: I think what's best. What sounds best to me about everything you're describing when it comes to the next edition of your game is that you're not putting out some miniatur'es line and to make to make some money and using the rules to fuel that. what what what's fueling your changes are all of the new bits of history that you're learning to better reflect what World War One combat was like, which is such a genuine thing that you don't always necessarily see um in the gaming community are uh, these days.
1: Yeah, that's. I, I mean, it, it's important for uh, for Robert and I, and and now Robin Sutton, who's another guy who's uh, he's a New Zealander. Um, Robin uh, is another guy who's working with us a little bit on uh, on uh, some scenario books in the past. But now that he's retired, he's going to be working with us uh, quite a bit with uh, Great War Spearhead Three, right? And you know, for all three of us, it, it's really important. To ensure that we have it as as correct as we can make it, uh, and the and keep the language clean, because uh, that that's that's one of the one of the big things that will stop people from gaming, even if they're a historic uh, uh, desire, is to put on a game like this. Is if it's unclear how the rule is meant to be played, people will shy away. And Artie has a really good saying: "We don't come in the book," meaning the author. <laughs> The book right right so you have to sure that the the rules uh stand on their own so um and and I will take the hit for a couple things like the the uh you know you you write what you know right and for me I'm I'm an orator more than I'm a writer so people tell me well just just write the way you speak because that'll work and I try that but I'm uh I'm easily led down a rabbit hole Right. Hold on,
0: so, though. Being a teacher, that is a ridiculous thing to expect. Like, the way one speak, <laughs> it speaks is never how one writes. They are two fundamentally different things. So, whoever is telling you that, Sean, just ignore that. <laughs> Thanks. We love yeah. you. Whoever you are out there, we love you. But they're not the same thing at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I will take the hit for some of the things like the artillery rules, which to me made complete sense when I wrote them. Um, but you know, through and, and you know, I can I can tell you that the one thing that I take hits on all the time for Great War Spearhead is the clarity of the artillery rules, and that's because I used some language that was normal in 1914 to 1918, like brigaded guns. Right. That that was a standard uh, um, terminology for what happened when you put all your batteries together from uh, 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 from a regiment. Right. Say that today to people who are used to uh, brigade, regiment, and you say brigaded guns, and and it just goes right over their heads. And not their problem. That's mine. That's me, right? So you can't expect somebody to understand the nomenclature from uh, the war itself. It's like Robert always talks about musketry, right? Because that's how they termed it. And, uh, he's, uh, you know, he talks about musketry and he got in a big argument with a guy one time, Well, not an argument, it was a discussion, but this guy was said, well, how come you call it musketry? They weren't using muskets, they were using rifles. And Robert goes, well, that's how it was by the British (laughs) Army. It was called musketry. And he goes, well, that's stupid because they were rifles. And the guy couldn't get past the point that it was not, you know, musketry was just a terminology of anything that dealt with firearms. Right. Um, the british never uh, updated their their drill manuals right. so even though the enfield or the lee metford in in uh 1890 they still call it musketry in 1914 all yeah. the enfields and they still call it musketry
0: right well the, here's the thing though sean <laughs> the other tricky thing about artillery though especially during world war one is again um if you think about all the different elements of warfare during that time period i mean using indirect fire and creating brigaded guns and Plotting out and planning where those shells were going to land and when they were going to land. I mean, that's that's a challenging thing to represent in a board game. So I think that any any complexity there or any confusion there... I mean, sure, it might be from the language, but it might also be the fact that you're trying to reflect something that's very complex and do it in a very simple way. Which can sometimes you know, probably throw people off, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and, and and you're right. I mean, there is that whole complexity of and how the how the system changed, right? Like in the in the first uh, months of the war, indirect fire was used quite a bit by the Germans, especially, and the Russians actually used an amazing amount of uh, indirect fire because they learned during the Russo-Japanese War. But there was still a lot of direct fire guns attached to brigades and uh, in, in line of fire, um, and and used just just how you would have seen it in the American Civil War or in uh, the Franco-Prussian War. But that evolved. And then the uh, more evolution happened because you would have on-call guns, you would have barrage guns, you would have standing barrage guns, you would have rolling barrages, you would have box barrages, you would have counter-battery fire, all these different elements. And as the corps commander, you control that.
0: Right. <laughs> that's a no and that and that's kind of that's my point like that's a lot yeah. to have to think about and then again like i think that it's innovative what you guys have done where a lot of a lot of the checks that you have to make is just a simple d6 role but i imagine trying to get to that simple d6 role as a rules author is probably really challenging right <laughs> it's <laughs> it, it is it's
1: not easy because you can't just base it on simple um uh simple, uh, probability, right? You have right. to sort of get, you know, how easy was it for a call and be brought in by a forward observer that can be, you can say, well, you know, every time they called, uh, it was effective 90% of the time, but then you have to take into account the army, the time period, the uh, the actual battle itself, because, uh, you might have uh, you might have had uh, no cloud cover on all the all the uh, battles they fo- they fought in, in when you were looking at how to deal with that uh call in fire um so the so the air and you and you haven't even looked at aircraft or uh or barrage balloons right so when you start right. putting all these different pieces together yeah it's not it's not a simple equation of uh well you know the artillery got called in nine times out of 10 or, right uh, this battle yeah but what about the battle that happened two months later or the gotcha. battle year before yeah so to, to try and to try and um um bring all that together is not simple and then you know you, you always look at um Cauntland fire is a really good example so if you look at the charts that, uh, that i developed um because the charts didn't change when we did um great war spearhead two
2: mm-hmm. it,
1: the charts that I built, they're, they're basically, uh, you know, there's the Germans uh, and the French and the British have sort of, a, uh, and, and, and including the Americans in there, have a better capability of calling in. And that was based on uh, the whole concept that they had a lot more experience, a lot more uh, time to uh, evolve. And other nations are poor, but they have a tendency to catch up. Right. Now, if I. If I go back, and I might do this during um, uh, the rewrite, um, I would have to say that the Italians w- would start out in 1915 as probably the poor cousin, uh, alongside people like um, uh, the Serbs, because um, the Serbs didn't didn't do call in fire well at the beginning. Right. Uh, a couple of the, the smaller nations, but countries like. Um, uh, Bulgaria actually had uh, pretty effective artillery, and they it's because of the lessons that they they took forward from the uh, the Balkan Wars, right? Right. And the Balkan Wars really, they must have learned, uh, like I don't know how many Romanians or uh, Bulgarians or uh, Serbs went over to look at the Russo-Japanese War, but whatever the Bulgarians took away from that, they seemed to take a lot more away than even some of the major nations. I mean, France never never took away anything from indirect fire.
0: Right. You
1: know, the Swasson Canyons was all about direct fire rapid. Yeah.
0: Well, I think, but I think you, you hit, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, again, like whatever the industrial capability of some of these, some of these, um, nations were like putting that aside for the second, you know, um, yeah, sure, the French fought some colonial wars and such, but really, I mean, they're kind of reliving their experiences from 1870. Whereas, you know, if you're the, you know, the Bulgarians, I mean, you had just fought a war really two years before the Great War even starts. And I I think that definitely makes a difference. It's probably a better question for Robert, because I'd be curious if he ever looked at any of the documents from the Balkans. But I mean, to me, like to, you know, I, I wouldn't call myself a layman, but, um, you know, I again, like, I just think that, when it comes to a place like France, you know, comparing it to Bulgaria, experience definitely does matter. And it has an impact on the battlefield.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and you can see that from the, it's funny, eh? Um, if you read Showalter's book on, uh, on Tannenberg.
0: Yeah, I have it. It's on my bookshelf upstairs. Yeah, yeah. I know and, exactly and what you're talking about. The
1: Germans were absolutely flabbergasted with the fire effect that the Russians had. Yeah. Right? But then they ran out of ammunition so quickly. Yeah, because this is, yeah, yeah, go ahead. yeah, the stockpile was just not enough, and then you got to look at why the stockpile wasn't enough, and a lot of it boiled down to uh, corruption. Yeah,
0: right. They, the <laughs> Russians did really well in like the first week and a half of the war. You know, yep. I mean, when they had weapons, um, and 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 armaments, I mean, they did an exceptional job. You know, once they started to run out of those supplies and some of those command issues, and again, like you nailed it, it's like that. That sense of corruption, especially at Tannenberg, where you have two army commanders that are not even on speaking terms practically, yet they're trying yeah. to coordinate coordinate <laughs> an offensive, you know, over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, you know. Yeah. So let me ask you something, because I know this is something that came up um before we started. And I know that we're we're a little short on time, but I, I definitely wanted to get this question in. Yeah. So here, and I'll I'll kind of start it with a little bit of an example, you know. So there have been times where I've played Great War Spearhead with friends. And again, like, you know, maybe friends who are more used to those more freewheeling types of games. And this is something that's come up. Is Great War Spearhead a game or is Great War Spearhead a simulation? And again, when I use those words, um, when I think of a simulation, I think of something that almost has not necessarily a fixed outcome, but I think that simulations tend to be something that are more, it's more important to reflect the history than to have kind of a really freewheeling game. Whereas a game, it's more about your dice rolls and having fun and things like that and kind of put the history aside. That's kind of my definition. So for you, Sean, where do you you think Great War Spearhead falls on that spectrum? Okay,
1: so I think, I, I got a caveat. This uh, not carefully, but I I, I want to make sure that it's understood that I think it can capture both, um, based on the player, right? Like if the if somebody sets up a, a one off game, it can be very much a game. Um, yeah. But if you, you you can actually go into too much detail and take away the game capability of like you know the gaming capability of making it fun for both sides if you go strictly historic. Now, when I say strictly historic, that's where you would get into this simulation. So I would say Great War Spearhead 2, or Great War Spearhead system, is is really a
0: simulation game. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a great answer. So you're you saying get, kind of somewhere, you're, you can kind of get both.
1: You can. And, um, you know, a good example is... Um, If you, uh, like, you know, I'm working on Days of May right now, right? And Days of May is the Italian War. Uh, So it'll take you through from the uh, Italo-Turkish War Mm -hmm. all the way through to 1918. And uh, it encompasses all the uh, different theaters the Italians were in. Right. So if you talk to anybody that knows anything about world war one and you say Italian front, they immediately think Hey, sounds the 12 battles. What a useless thing, right? Yeah. And first of all, I won't even go into the detail of why it was the only option for the Italians really only option or that it wasn't all as bad as people are led to believe, even though there was some horrible, horrible, uh, errors made at the uh, Supreme command level. Um, Uh, And make no mistake, those guys were fighting over terrain. Most of the guys in the Western Front would have gone, oh my God, what is this? Right. Right? But the Italians, the Austrians fought over it like it was nothing. So all that aside, if you were going to do the assault on uh, the Carso Plateau, historically, don't bother. It, 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 It would just be a nightmare for the Italians, as it was. Yeah. So as I'm building the game, I am following all the historic data, but then I take okay. So I'm gonna I'm I'm putting in there that this is what historically happened. So to give uh, a playable chance for the Italians to actually achieve victory, instead of being limited to this, they can do this and this. Um, You can and I, I tell the players in the in the scenario notes: feel free to play it out historically if you want. Don't use these options. But if you use this option and this option, that will make it much more uh um uh game worthy. So, you know, when Robert and I talk about things uh when it comes to historic accuracy, we want to make sure that it is historically accurate as possible without taking away the gamemanship, right? Got it. So um some of the some of that we we use uh um uh, John Moore did a really nice uh I don't know was it John Moore? No, it wasn't John, it was um uh-oh, I just lost his name. That's okay.
0: Happens to me all the time. A Kiwi um, uh, developed a, a
1: system for Great War Spear Spearhead that was an automatic scenario generator. And so Robin worked with him to um, to get it developed for Great War Spearhead. So there's victory point conditions that you can uh, use um, that make it, that, that take away the... The historic simulation side, and actually put in some gaming capability, so that you know, let's say, for example, you got a hill, and the hill was um, uh, an important piece. So historically, the French never got to take the hill. Mm-hmm. But in the game, if you say that they take part this part of the hill and this part of the hill, they get three victory points, and that's enough to defeat the Germans. Even though they didn't do it historically, in the game they could very well succeed in that and that would give them a victory which would have been better than what the historic result was but still wouldn't take away um the historic accuracy of what was going on in the field you see what i
0: mean i do no i i I get it completely um and and you know when i think about great war spearhead but i would also say like games of that ilk where you're kind of you have elements of a standard game and you have elements of a simulation together frankly for me I, I i've gotten accustomed to just i'm gonna draw a map up and i'm gonna put you know, terrain features that would have been reflect- reflective of a region. But what I find is by doing it that way and not necessarily fixing it to like a real place or fixing it to like a real battle, it does kind of open up more possibilities for players where they've never seen this ground before. Like even for your average gamer who likes World War One, but maybe doesn't know a ton about the world, they know what the SOM was, right? Yeah. So maybe thrusting them into that situation isn't necessarily as exciting as... Saying here, you haven't even seen the gaming table yet. All you have is this map. How would you deal with this, with this terrain, not necessarily knowing where the enemy is? You know, I, I find that can be pretty rewarding as a GM. Yeah, because you still you still have the same tactical advantages and disadvantages.
1: Yep. Um, but now you're on fresh ground. And that's I mean, that's one of the reasons why I put the the um trench warfare stuff in there the way I did into Great War Spearhead.
0: Right. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: So, so can I just yeah I go just for jump it. the thing? So you know, uh, talking about simulations, I wanted to to get into really quickly. Yeah, I wrote a set of rules called Mourir pour l'Indochine, and it's the French um, war in Indochina. And the like, it's a it's a huge topic of study for me. I love the period, and uh, you know, if you've never read Bernard Fall's books or any of the other ones, they're well worth a read and it you know it it is the lead up to the americans going into vietnam and you know i read i read bernard fall's book and i read a couple others that were done by french legionnaires and stuff like that. And, and i got i got to tell you to be honest i i had some sleepless nights thinking about what those guys on both sides of the of the battlefield went through right mm-hmm. you know you think about some of the some of the stuff so when i wrote it moreur porlenda shin i wanted to i wanted to give a game that really immersed players into the theater, uh, of play. What I did was I made a simulation and so, um, much though I love the way the game plays, it is not, um, it's not easy to put on a game. Like, you know, the, the rules are all there. You can, you can do it, but it's, it's hard to, um, to know how to run the game if you don't know, um, Indochina really well. And, uh, I sort of missed the mark on that one. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually going back and rewriting to sort of simplify things because I did, I, um, uh, you know, in, 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 uh, in my own words, I failed the gamer with my, with my rules. And, uh, so I gotta, I gotta redo
0: them. Are you doing uh, that now? Is that kind of the thing you're working on currently?
1: It's one of the things that it's it's not um, on my forward uh, forward burner, if you will, but it's mm-hmm. definitely a work in progress, and I'm I'm probably about three quarters of the way through.
0: That's great. So, um, again, because because uh, we're a little short on time, but I'm I'm curious because I've never actually played um, the simulation that you're talking about. So, I mean, in again, for someone who has never played a simulation before, how would you describe? The game that that you designed about French Indochina. Well, um, okay, so I'm biased because I yep. really like. But oh, it, yeah, we'll forget about liking and disliking. How does the game work? I think that's that's it, I think so what. Well, so the most idea curious is, about. Um, the way I
1: the way I built it is uh, the the first book is skirmish warfare. Okay, so you can play it on two levels of the skirmish warfare. You can just play individual skirmish, which is each figure is a soldier. Or you can play skirmish plus, which is each figure is uh, three, uh, three or five, um, basically a fire team. Um, so the idea is that your squad leader um, has to keep his troops within uh, command radius, so like they have to stay within a certain re- uh, certain range of each other, so that they can benefit from the any direction that the squad leader would give. And the squad leader has a certain amount of uh, orders that he can execute in a turn, um, but he can't use, like, he can't do many of them. He can only uh, direct fire, or he can shoot himself. He can call in fire, things like that. So it it limits your uh, scope of what you can do, which historically is is true. Like, I, I was in the, in- before I joined the Navy, right? So I know how a section platoon and company work um, uh, on the ground floor based on um, when I was in the militia, which was in 1979, 1980. Right. Uh, you know the fighting style then was not a lot different than what the French were doing in Indochina. In fact, uh, things like the Aussie peel back from a um, uh, from for breaking contact was developed through use of the French, and then the Australians actually uh, executed a, a even better uh, procedure when they went into Vietnam, and it's still used today. Right. So you know those type of things are all all in there um, <clears throat> uh, because of the scale of the game. Weapons ranges are extreme uh, from a from a bolt action perspective because I based it on you know if the, the if the table is uh, one inch is, is uh, two meters your your SMG can fire forty inches.
0: Oh, I see. So you're right? talking a real oh, okay. That makes sense. You're talking about like a ground scale where if you're playing on a regular size game table, this is representing a very small area of 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 foliage. Gotcha. Yeah, but you so so that drove guys nuts right away. They
1: said, "Well, you know, a pistol can fire uh, thirty inches." Well, yeah, because it's it's only sixty meters, right? When you start taking into effect the the ground, the coverage, the hills, the the jungle, all of a sudden your uh, your your uh, capability of actually engaging somebody might only be eight inches, right? Gotcha. Might only might only be twenty meters, right? So. Some people complained to me about that. They said, well, you know, why is the range this far if you can only uh, fe- effectively fire this far? Well, that's in that particular scenario. If you have a sniper on a high point who can see the entire length of the table, they should be able to kill the person at the far end of the table, right? Right. Yeah, so, no, for sure. Yeah, so, you know, all those little bits and pieces are working there. Um, I I didn't put in things like punji sticks, Um particularly, but I have, uh, traps, right? Mm-hmm. So you step on a mine or a trap or whatever, and certain mines were anti-personnel and certain mines were anti-tank or anti-vehicle. And, uh, yeah, so, so the, the, you know, the rules themselves ended up covering about 40 pages. And then the whole book is about 112 pages, I think, because I, you know, I went into, um, uh, the, um, The breakdown on all the different types of uh, units that were in the uh, theater. And I also put in a campaign game where you could play that you were uh, looking after this valley as a French Foreign Legion outpost, and you eventually had to evacuate
0: based on stuff happening around you. You you know what's interesting? Um, because you just reminded me of something that I had definitely wanted to mention in this podcast for our listeners who might be, again, like interested in pursuing some of these rules, is the fact that even if you don't want to play a game like Great War Spearhead, or even if you're not interested necessarily in a simulation about French Indochina, what I love about your books is that they're just treasure troves of information where even if you don't want to play that game, you can take so much of the maps and all the information about, like, unit ratings and, and weapons and things like that, and literally use the rules almost as a source book for other things that you're interested in, which really makes the rules booklets um, more like source books to me than anything else. And it sounds like this game about French Indochina would certainly fit that mold.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I, um, I put a lot of heart and soul into it because I it feel like it's a, a forgotten entity. Yeah. Um, you know when you start reading about what happened there and uh the various people that went in there to fight and the you know the the vietnamese people uh fighting for independence it's just uh yeah i i i i guess i did it sort of as a testament to them um yeah but i know i mucked up the system yeah all uh, oh, the details good but uh the, the system itself is too clunky <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it'll be exciting to see whenever you come out with that next edition. And by the way, on that note, um here's a question for you just um in terms of like starting to to wrap up this pod. Um if somebody wanted to find your materials online or if somebody wanted to get into contact with you, um which is a hope that I have, you know, when this pod comes out. What what would be the best place for somebody to go? Okay,
1: so if they wanted to get my rules like uh, or or any of my books, I sell through lulu.com under Taylor Wargaming Publications. Okay. So you can you can search Taylor Wargaming Publications, you'll find all my books which are available in print and in PDF. I'm also on uh, RPG Drive or RPG. Uh, which is well the drive through system, right? So drive through is either RPG or gaming or whatever, but they're all connected. So if you go to drive through and search Great War Spearhead, you'll find me.
0: Dodge, uh, it. it's great. Um,
1: on military matters carries all my books. Uh, that's Dennis in, uh, in New Jersey, um, and on on military matters is of course an online store as well as a, um, a bricks and mortar, and. Uh, what's the name uh Cal- caliver books carries my stuff in england as well so that's you know if you wanted to get the books or the rules that those are the, the the best ways to do it um to get a hold of me i've got uh i'm on facebook uh both under taylor wargaming publications and uh and under sean taylor and uh, i in in all my rules i always put in there that if you want to contact me directly is Sean taylor at hotmail.com and that's s h a w n uh, or sorry, Sean T63 at hotmail.com. Gotcha. And uh, that's it, so, you know, if somebody had to ask me, wanted to ask me questions directly, uh, that, that's a good way to go. But I also have, um, groups for all my rules on Facebook. Um, we only have, um, Great War Spearhead on the IO groups, um, webpage. And, uh, we that's a pretty active group, actually. We have, it is. Uh, a pretty, uh, pretty good discussions there. And Robert's on that one. He's not on Facebook. Uh, although he does have a, an account, he, he uses his wife's, but he doesn't get on Facebook very much, but he's still a really busy guy. He's still working. Uh, and I'm semi-retired. So, um, it, it's not always easy for him to, to delve into the other things, especially seeing how he, he does everything with the, the great war spearhead, um, uh, website itself. Right. Uh, We might be changing that model a little bit in the next little while because he wants to he wants to get me um, working on that as well.
0: Cool. Well, it sounds like you have so much going on. And uh, I hope that your little gaming weekend that you have, because I've seen the pictures of your game um, on Instagram. So, right. yeah, so for people out there, if you look up Sean on Instagram, you will find a lot of photos um, of stuff that he's painted. And, I, you know, I saw your, you know, uh, your Italy versus Austria board. It looks great. It looks awesome. Uh, thanks very much. Yeah, I'm like, I'm excited about that one for sure. How many players are you going to have?
1: Uh, right now I have five confirmed and one guy is hoping to make it, but he hasn't been able to confirm for me yet. Gotcha. Well, and good luck with that. <laughs> because it should be great yeah and then on that so that'll be the saturday game on the sunday we're going to play soe which is uh special operations executive
0: right and that's like your sort of like role-playing kind of like pulp game right no no this one's uh um, this
1: is different war, yeah this is world war Two, and it's uh secret uh, churchill's secret army oh so cool the- that sounds fun yeah, you 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 uh you often only have one, maybe two agents and you have to execute uh various missions that secret squirrels back then would have uh would have had to execute. Um, OSS is the the American equivalent, right? And the awesome. OSS of course became the CIA.
0: Um no, that's so, yeah, that sounds great. So everybody's gonna what take on like a small team or like everybody represents one person in the game?
1: Well, um if you're SOE or OSS, you could have as many as uh, two operatives, or two agents, three agents, and then you could have some resistance fighters if you're conducting a raid. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're security, uh, the security forces, they could be 40, 60 strong and include uh, vehicles, um, very seldom tanks, but armored cars are are not um, abnormal. Gotcha.
0: Um,
1: yeah, that, that's yeah. cool.
0: Yeah, that sounds like so. It's again, it sounds like you have a lot going on. So you'll definitely have to come on the pod again at some point. Um, It would be great to have you come back on. And you know, what I often will say to guests is, um, you know, the second or third time you're on is when we can really pick a specific point and really just focus the the podcast on that. You know, because again, I you know, for the first one, I always want people to get a feel for who the person is. So
1: yeah, I'd be I'd be more than happy to do this again, Jared. I love this kind
0: of. (laughs) <laughs> yeah me too it's why i started the podcast i just you know it's a very selfish endeavor frankly like i want to talk to talk to the people i want to talk to you know so um but and and again like uh at some point or another maybe maybe the uh stars will align and we can all kind of get together for a game that would be a lot of fun so that's fantastic cool. i'd love to make for sure a historic on at some point well, yeah, that would be awesome. Because um, if you can ever get there, I mean, NextGen, the group that I work with and helped found, um, you know, we have our own gaming space there. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the cast, um, you know, we'll have, you know, two or three tables and pretty much games will be going on it pretty much all day. Um, you know, and it's all people that are affiliated with the organization. So who knows, like maybe, uh, maybe at some point we can get you a Historic Con and we can run a a spearhead game together. You know, that would be that would be a blast. Yeah, for sure. All right, cool. All right, everybody. So, Sean, thanks so much. And for all of our listeners, um, you know, again, uh, Sean gave all his uh, information in there. So, hopefully, uh, you'll check out his game system. So, see you all later. Have a good one. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Sean. Thank you so much for listening to today's 20 sided gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org. My Instagram handle is hmgs underscore nextgen underscore inc. Until next time, be well, get some gaming in, and roll some 20s. Thank you so much. (laughs) we <laughs>